to the program. I'm Jeff Schechter. In 1953, in his first inaugural address, Dwight Eisenhower talked about the positive impacts of government. Eleven years later, Ronald Reagan, on his entrance into the national stage, said the following in a speech for Barry Goldwater. This is the issue of this election. Whether we believe in our capacity for self-government or whether we abandon the American Revolution and confess that a little intellectual elite in a far distant capital can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them ourselves. 24 years later, in his first inaugural, Ronald Reagan said the following. Government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. From time to time, we've been tempted to believe that society has become too complex to be managed by self-rule, that government by an elite group is superior to government for, by, and of the people. And 12 years later, we heard this from Bill Clinton. The era of big government is over. What happened? What happened to the partnership between business and government and citizens that resulted in so much success and prosperity in the post-war years? What happened to the progressive agenda that once embraced presidents from Teddy Roosevelt to Woodrow Wilson. And what price are we paying for all of this today? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Paul Pearson. He's a professor of political science and public policy at the University of California, Berkeley. He's the author of the previous book, Winner Take All Politics, How Washington Made the Rich Richer. And it is my pleasure to welcome Paul Pearson here to talk about his newest work, American Amnesia, how the war on government led us to forget what made America prosper. Paul Pearson, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. It's great to have you here. How did we get to this point? There was once a time that the hostility wasn't quite the same for government, that we didn't hear for, in movies and from people like Ronald Reagan that, that the scariest words in the English language were, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Well, I, th I thought your intro did a great job of, of tracking that transformation, and I think it's probably worth um, taking a second just to go back and, and talk about what it is that we've lost, um, you know, which, is, which uh, Jacob Hacker, my co-author, and I on, on this book and, and the last one, uh, describe as a mixed economy. Um, it's not one where government is doing all the planning and everything's being ceded to government, but it's, but it's one in which you essentially have um, a combination of a dynamic private sector and a pretty active public sector because there are a lot of things that markets either aren't going to do on their own or um, are not going to do well on their own. And, and, and in many cases, like you think about things like pollution, they can actually generate a lot of problems. And so over the course of the 20th century, the U.S. and every other country that prospered developed a mixed economy in which you had kind of a healthy tension. You call it a partnership, but it wasn't always um, uh, one based fully on cooperation. There was a lot of tension, too. But you, you had a, uh, a partnership between business and government, between the private sector and the public sector. It wasn't always perfect, but it generated over time just a spectacular improvement in living standards and prosperity. Uh, and you know, that was a system that existed uh, by the post-war period, Dwight Eisenhower was a champion of it, uh, among among many others, both Republicans and Democrats, including a lot of business leaders. Uh, and it's really been since the 1970s, um, with the the rise of 
um, a more aggressive business community. Uh, this is a big, I think, a part of the story of the transition. You get a much more powerful and aggressive kind of anti-government business community um, and a Republican Party that really changes in ways uh, that push it into much more opposition to the mixed economy. Along with it, on, on an intellectual level, came these kind of Randian ideas about free markets always being good, and the more they were unfettered by government, the more effective they were going to be. Yeah, it's a stunning trans- transformation, uh, and it was an intellectual project. I mean, it's it's quite a story. Again, you hear it a little bit in the, those passages of those clips that you had at the beginning of the conversation, uh, where people start talking about government more and more as just as alien and parasitical. Uh, and this is an idea that you can really trace to Ayn Rand, you know, who was a fringe figure in American thought uh, a generation ago. I mean, there were people out on the fringes, some of whom now are, are powerful, like, like the Koch brothers, uh, who, who believed that kind of stuff. But it was completely marginal to American conversations and American debates. And, and, it, and it is a betrayal of government, again, it's just a, like, a purely alien force and the idea that if you had free markets by which they mean markets that don't have any regulation uh that you know that the these um great innovators what what now sometimes people use this term the job creators uh, as if it's just a handful of super talent talent uh super talented and fearless individuals are the ones who generate jobs and as jacob and i demonstrate in the story i mean this just is not true. If you look at the long arc of history, uh, it takes the efforts of millions and millions of people to create the social conditions that foster prosperity. You were talking about the hostility of, of business before, and certainly groups like the Business Roundtable and the Chamber of Commerce have been powerful anti-government voices. To what extent has it also come from the business end of the financial community, and that being an area that has gone through major change and has in some ways you know, benefited at least personally from less government control. Yeah, I think that's a very important part of the story, Jeff. Is It's not just that business has become more politically powerful, though it has become uh, more politically powerful. The decline of labor unions, I think, is an important part of that, that story. Uh, but the views of business leaders have really changed. And I, the, the two big structural uh, transformations there, one is the one that you mentioned, which is um, Wall Street um, and uh, sort of the financialization of, of the American economy, in which companies are seen as, um, you know, more and more just kind of like financial products that you can slice and dice um, and are not seen as being embedded in a particular community or having any broader obligations to, to the local community. In the, bo- in the book, we describe the shift from uh, George Romney, uh, Mitt Romney's father, who was also a, a leading Republican presidential candidate and had been the CEO of American Motors. Uh, the transformation from George Romney to Mitt Romney also says something about how American business uh, has transformed. Uh, and, you know, much, much uh, of a shift away from seeing it as kind of having a responsibility to all the various stakeholders uh, in the local community to being simply um, simply a financial entity. And if you could do something that was going to drive up the share price 
uh, that's a great thing. And so it's partly about Wall Street, but it's also a change in just how companies are organized, uh, the rise of the, the idea of shareholder value that essentially maximizing the stock price is uh, the only thing the corporation should care about. The other phrase that, that you, Ronald Reagan uses, he uses it both in the 64 speech and in, in the inaugural address that, that really struck me, is talking about government and Washington as this small group of elites. How did that enter the conversation? Well, it's a great irony, right, that um, there has been a spectacular increase in economic inequality in the U.S. over the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, but, of course, it's not that shift in inequality has not been about empowering governmental elites or, you know, pointy-headed liberals. It's been about em- empowering people who are at the top of the business community, the, the extraordinarily wealthy. And I think one of the things uh, that uh, conservatives... Uh, those who who champion an, an absolute minimum role of government, I think something that they've been very effective at doing is essentially targeting, um, you know, intellectual elites or um, uh, public servants, uh, bureaucrats, as being a target for public wrath um, rather than the people who actually have seen um, their their resources and power dramatically expand over the past generation. And of course, the the increased amount of money in politics, particularly coming from business, and as it continues to increase, has played a huge role in this. Yes, it has. And, and of course, it's affected both parties. I mean, I think we, Jacob and I believe strongly that the transformation of the Republican Party has been the more fundamental thing, uh, that, that when you had this mixed economy that really did work so well for generating prosperity uh, for much of the 20th century, you know, incredible improvements in life expectancy and education and so on. I mean, we're, we're sitting in, here in California. You think about something like the, the construction of the University of California system, which, you know, is a huge generator of scientific innovation and prosperity, lay, helped lay the, the foundation for, um, for Silicon Valley. Uh, when you, you had that kind of that system, you know, the Republican Party was a really important part of it. Um, and uh, the Republican Party has basically deserted uh, that that commitment, and uh, Democratic support for it has become weaker. And I, I don't think there's any question that the shift in the income distribution uh, towards the very top um, and the tremendous increase in uh, political money uh, that's been associated with that and where, where that money comes from uh, is an important part of the story. The other part of it is is that there's an element of this that has become kind of a, a self-perpetuating aspect in that as it has added to this divide that you're talking about, as the, the economic divide has gotten larger, as there's been, as a result, a greater need or a greater focus on a social safety net, there has been this pushback, this reaction against that from people that view government as helping others, helping people not like them. And that's fostered some of what we're talking about as well. Yeah, there's a, absolutely a vicious spiral here. Um, and, I, and you're, I think, nicely highlighting two different pieces of it. Um, one is this idea that government is mostly about taking from some people uh, and giving to other people. So in addition to talking about job creators, pe- people on the right often talk about makers and takers. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a Romney's 
famous line about the 47% that he sees as totally reliant on government. But, but even on the political left, you often hear people talk these days about government as if it's mostly about redistribution. Uh, and, and Jacob and I argue forcefully in the book, and I, I think the evidence on this is just overwhelming, that the most important things that government does, and the list is long, um, are beneficial to essentially all Americans, or almost all Americans, rather than being about redistribution. You think about things like reducing pollution or aiding public health uh, or creating an infrastructure for higher education and for basic education. You know, these are not mostly about redistribution, but, but we've changed the conversation in which, you know, and I think a lot of the alienation from government is based on this idea that, well, it's only doing stuff for other people. Uh, and then, then the other piece of it, right, is this idea that, again, I think is quite understandable, is that powerful interests have captured government. Uh, and so Americans become alienated from, from government. Uh, they drop out um, or uh, they don't do a good job of holding the politicians who are supporting those powerful interests accountable. Uh, and there's essentially a kind of vicious spiral there. And the the Republican Party, again, I think has been very effective in harnessing anti-government messages, even as they've been quite active. You think about people like Newt Gingrich or Mitch McConnell, um, who you know are, are, work very closely with very powerful organized interests to, to pursue their goals, uh, and at the same time work to sort of maximize dysfunction in Washington. Uh, but then a lot of times they reap the political benefits from doing that as people become disgusted and drop out. It's interesting that what they've done, though, and you, you talk about this in the book, is demonize government as an abstraction because most people generally like some of the things that government does. It's it's the abstract idea of government that, that people are pushing back to. It's like the signs that have been held up, you know, get government out of my Medicare. Yeah, one analyst we quote in the book says that uh, Americans have dealt with their um, ambivalence about government by putting uh, Jefferson in charge of the rhetoric and Hamilton in charge of the policy. Um, <laughs> you know, so when we talk abstractly about government, we say, well, the government that governs least governs best. Uh, but when you actually ask people in polls about you know, a whole range of public policy issues, they want the things that government is doing, and in many cases, they want government to do more. They they don't want the Environmental Protection Agency to be abolished. Um, you know, the Clean Air Act has added years uh, to our life expectancy. They don't uh, want Social Security to be privatized. Uh, you know, they want um, uh, they want regulation of the financial sector. Um, they want good public schools. They want good public universities. Uh, you know, they want infrastructure. They want us to fix our infrastructure. So, you know, part of the real challenge, you know, is, and I think, you know, one reason why the debate has gone somewhat awry in the U.S. is that we, we mostly do talk at this very general level um, and in which we, you know, see government as somehow the opponent of freedom um, and not enough about the concrete things uh, that government does uh, that are so fundamental for prosperity. One wonders about the role that the civil rights movement played in this pushback to government because it did because the racial animus did seem to create an atmosphere that created demonization of government for doing things that created racial equality. Yeah, that's a really great question, Jeff. I think it's I think the the history and the politics of that are are complicated, though I though I think 
what you're, what you're getting at is clearly important. I, I, you know, I say complicated because uh, in spite of all the racial conflict and tensions we see today, I think it be hard, it'd be hard to argue that the, U, that the U.S. isn't, in general, a more racially tolerant place than it was 50 years ago. I, you know, I think there are a lot of things that one could point to to indicate that on the whole that is true, Donald Trump notwithstanding. Uh, but, I, but I do think that the civil rights movement had very powerful effects on American politics, um, most importantly uh, by pushing the South mm -hmm. into the Republican Party, the white South into the Republican Party, um, which really transformed the nature of that party. Um, and I think there's a way in which um, I, the, the anti-government message that that party then began to develop, the Republican Party began to develop, uh, was you know, often a kind of coded form of reaction to the civil rights movement, saying that you were anti-government, um, was, you know, was, a, was often a not-so-veiled way of saying um, that you don't like a system that seems to have empowered groups that you're opposed to, minority groups that you're opposed to, and really trying to highlight the idea that government is working for those minorities. And you see, um, you see a lot in public opinion polls to suggest that that, that message resonates you know, particularly with a lot of white working class voters. It's interesting that, that Richard Nixon really understood that perfectly, and he used it to his advantage in the South in creating that hostility towards government. But yet he also created things like the EPA, which showed the positive side of government. He really tried to have it both ways. And, and George Bush the Elder kind of did the same thing. I think that's absolutely right. It's quite it's quite striking. Um, you know, certainly Nixon. I mean, you know, Nixon in many cases was signing legislation passed by Democratic Congresses. Uh, you know, but he was much much more supportive of, of what we're calling the mixed economy than the Republicans who came later. You know, by um, by today's standards, I think he would be seen on many many of these domestic economic issues as, as a moderate to liberal Democrat. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, it's a completely different place than where the party is now. Uh, but I think you could see that as partly a transitional per period for the party because he, as you say, he really did sharpen these racial, racialized messages and kind of racially coded messages. Uh, and what happens after Nixon leaves the stage is that that stuff starts to spill over over time into the way that they talk about domestic policy more generally, right? So this, this much harsher... Uh, message about government um, and about social welfare policies or even even something like the Environmental Protection Agency, all of these become targets for conservatives. And it's interesting, I mean, even George Bush the Elder had one foot in dealing with individuals with disabilities and, and did a lot of good work in that regard, and Willie Horton on the other hand. Absolutely, absolutely right. So that message is still being used effectively, but in, in, in our telling of it, so George George Bush the senior is sort of the last gasp of moderate republicanism. Um, you know, it wasn't just the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, you know, but you get you know quite reasonable sort of compromise deficit reduction packages when Bush is president. Uh, he was the last Republican who was willing to uh, consider raising taxes to help deal with budget deficits. He signed a really important uh, extension of the Clean Air Act uh, that, 
you know, in some in some ways, introduced the models that eventually turned into uh, cap and trade proposals for dealing with climate change. Um, but of course, there was a conservative Republican backlash against him uh, that was led by Ging- by Newt Gingrich um, and you know other much more conservative Republicans in the House who uh, did not want to see those kinds of bipartisan mixed economy deals. They wanted a much more hard-nosed, confrontational. Um, a radical Republican Party. As we bring it up to today and talk about where we are today, the ones that seem to maybe have a handle on it, and it's ironic given that, that they've been one of the groups that created this environment, as we've talked about, but the business community seems to, to have a bit of a handle on on what we've lost here. Well, I'm not, I don't know whether I agree, I agree with that. I, mean, I think there are certainly elements in the business community. I think there, um, there, there, there that, are high-level CEOs, high CEOs that seem to get it. Right. I think there, I think there are, um, but not enough. Um, and I think um, you see many more instances, especially where you look to sort of organized political action by the mm-hmm. business community uh, that we spent a bunch of time in the book talking about the transformation of the Chamber of Commerce, which is really a, a pretty sad and sorry story where uh, in a generation ago, it was a conservative organization, but it worked with people in both parties to really, and was willing to participate in tackling big public policy questions like controlling health care costs. And now that organization, which has become much more powerful, um, is very tightly aligned with the Republican Party. Um, and even though they complain about Republican positions on a handful of issues, um, they, they back the party up um, you know, when it comes to every, every election. And they, um, they also pretty much carry water for every individual industry, uh, whether it's the healthcare uh, industry or the tobacco industry or fossil fuels, whatever it is that that industry wants, which is usually to just stop government from doing anything uh, to deal with uh, big public policy problems, uh, the Chamber of Commerce is right there backing them up. So, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do in the book is really argue strenuously for for business leaders um, that this is not the way to generate long-term economic prosperity. It's not good for American society. It's not good in the long run for American capitalism uh, to, to not be making the core investments in, in our own citizens, in um, education, in the environment, um, in infrastructure, uh, that you're going to need to have prosperity uh, a decade or two decades from now. How has globalization impacted what we're talking about? Well, I think that is part of the story, along with uh, the big uh, uh, transformation in how corporations function. This, you know, this, the rise of this idea of shareholder value. I mean, there's no question that that firms face a more competitive environment in which they feel a lot more pressure uh, to um, to maximize their their share price and do whatever seems like it's a, going to be profitable for them in the short run. Um, they're also, I think, less committed to the localities um, uh, where they're where they're situated at any moment. They're, they are at least many of them are potentially footloose. I mean, I think that can be exaggerated because a lot of big companies they really want to be where they are. I don't think you're going to see. Uh, you know, the big companies in Silicon Valley moving anywhere very soon because they want to be 
um, where you have you know these this dense clusters of of incredibly talented people and and um, vibrant corporations. So I think the mobility thing can be exaggerated. Globalization is definitely part of the story, but but one thing that that Jacob and I emphasize is that a lot of these trends towards a kind of radical libertarian sort of uh, anti-government sentiment uh, is it's much stronger in the U.S. Um, and the attack on government is much more vigorous and, and frankly, has been much more effective in the U.S. than has been true in m- most other rich countries, uh, which are also having to deal with globalization, right? Mm-hmm. So, I, so I don't think there's anything about the need to compete in the world economy uh, that dictates that you're going to have people denying the reality of climate change. Right. It's interesting, and, and there's an interesting irony in, in a lot of the rhetoric coming out of, I guess, the Trump campaign in particular, in, in terms of this kind of wanting to go back to a different time in American history, this, this kind of 50s nostalgia that is so much a part of that rhetoric, and yet it includes everything except this, this sense of the mixed economy that was so important then. Right. Well, you're certainly... Um uh, you're certainly not seeing any recognition of how important that stuff is right. uh, coming coming from the Trump campaign. You know, and there's been some interesting discussion about you know his own um, economic experiences that that he you know he has thrived on branding and deal making. Um, you know, rather than the kinds of um, the kind of innovation, you know, and things that actually increase the productivity and robustness of an economy. Uh, so in some ways, it's not surprising that, in, that um, his way of thinking about the economy is quite alien to this. But, you know, I think we all have to be careful about nostalgia. Um, you know, there are many reasons why you wouldn't want to go back to the 1950s. Right. And um, certainly, Jacob and I are not advocating that. And of course, it's not possible anyway. Um, but if you if you're trying to think about what's going to build prosperity going forward, uh, to to us it's just very clear that you're going to need effective political authority in combination with a robust private sector in order to be able to do that. I mean the fu- the future of our economies rests on knowledge and innovation, um, and having a workforce that um, can produce. Uh, that knowledge and innovation, and also knows how to take advantage of it to um, uh, to build great products and produce those products. Arguably, you you can make the point that that's more important now than it has been for the past 50, 60, 70 years, simply because of this transformation that we're going through in the economy in terms of the kind of workforce that will be required, the way technological innovation is displacing so many workers, the oper- both the problems and dangers and opportunities that that creates, that, that all of this that we're going through, this, this remarkable transformation creates more need than ever for this kind of a, a governmental role in what we're dealing with. Well, I think that's absolutely true. We make, and we make this case in the book, you know, and, the, and the, the other piece of that, so it's partly about, you know, the future is going to depend on, on knowledge and the production of knowledge. But the other piece of it is we are just increasingly interdependent. Um, you know, what people do affects each other. Um, and markets are actually not very good at dealing with those kinds of things. And, you know, climate change is the clearest example of this. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think is really striking, if you think about different visions of the 
our economic future. You know, the the drill baby drill approach, right, which basically says we should like dig and mine um, our way to prosperity. Uh, you know, that's that's the Saudi Arabia model um, for economic development. And, um, you know, as opposed to innovation that creates new, cleaner sources of energy that help us to deal with the, you know, the, the just obvious interdependence that exists in a modern and complicated society. Uh, and so you, you want to develop an economy that, that pushes in that direction, pushes towards the future and hopefully, hopefully a cleaner uh, future rather than one that says, gee, if we just, you know, if everybody just dug up more coal and we stopped uh, preventing people from digging up coal, everything would be great. And by the way, it's a model, model that's being abandoned by Saudi Arabia right now. That's right. I mean, you know, and it's just, you know, when you, when you, when you frame it that way in terms of thinking, what should the model be for generating prosperity in the 21st century? Uh, you know, it's, it's pretty clear, I think, that you, you wouldn't want to look to these extractive economies um, as a model for how, how a country like the United States or a particular state, a particular area of a state, how they should think about um, uh, building a better future for, for their children and, and for uh, generations to follow. Paul Pearson, his book is American Amnesia, How the War on Government Led Us to Forget What Made America Prosper. Paul, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you.